Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. For this and the next episode, Jimmy and I are talking to Scotty Edler, a history professor at Southern New Hampshire University, about his research into the Black Death and the Spanish Flu, and the continuities and discontinuities of those events with our current coronavirus-19 pandemic that we've all been living through for the last couple of years. In this first episode, Scotty will introduce the Black Death and the Spanish Flu, and in the next episode we will talk about the consequences of those disease outbreaks that influence our understanding of and the responses to new disease outbreaks. Now, this conversation was recorded in late 2021. Hi, everybody. Today, we are talking to Scotty Edler about everybody's favorite topic, pandemics. So, Scotty, why don't you kick us off? Well, it's great to be here. And um, the presentation that I had started um, was called The Black Death, Societal and Cultural Benefits of the Plague on the Modern World. And I started preparing this um, in 2017, hoping to be able to start presenting it at conferences in 2018 or 2019, and you know things get out of control, you get behind, and then lo and behold, it gets done, and we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, who would have thought? Um, <laughs> so... Today, I'm going to discuss not only the societal and cultural benefits of the Black Death on our modern world, but also we're going to look at how it compares and contrasts to our modern situation, the COVID-19 pandemic. So first of all, just to give a background, what is the Black Death for those people who are not medieval historians and um, have been living under a rock for the last hundred years? The Black Death happened from approximately 1347 to 1351, and for those people who were alive at the time, they considered this basically the end of the world, that they were living through the end of the world. And they had different names for it during the time. They called it the Pestilence, the Great Mortality, um, the Plague. Um, obviously, today we, we refer to it mainly as the Bubonic Plague. But the Black Death is really the name that has stuck throughout history. And many people ask, what is the Black Death? What was it? Well, for a couple hundred years, scientists were going back and forth as to what actually caused the Black Death. Today, it has been confirmed through DNA what we had long suspected, that it was bubonic plague. Um, it was Yersinia pestis. This is a a, a uh, disease that started sometime between 1500 and 6400 years ago. Um, they do find evidence of very similar uh, bubonic plague in the Bronze Age. So this is not a new um, disease per se, um, but the Black Death, the, the bubonic plague that hit in the 1300s was a much more severe form of, of that disease. Now, if you were unlucky enough to get the bubonic plague, what would you have to look forward to? Well, bad news, it's not, it's not going to be pleasant for you. First of all, um, you'd start out with a rash. Um, you'd have freckle, 
like spots. Most people thought that this would actually be a sign of the disease on your skin. It was actually flea bites. Um, most of the people who got the bubonic plague, especially in the early stages, it was from fleas. And then you would begin to grow along your body. You would grow basically tumors. Um, these would be in your groins or your armpits. And some of them could be as large as apples. Um, now, these obviously weren't tumors. They were cysts or boil-type um, skin issues. It was not like a, a tumor like we think of cancer. Um, and these tumors would, would ooze. They usually had pus or blood in them. Um, they also, the people who had this, would usually have a very high fever. The fever usually ranged from about 100 degrees to 106 degrees. Um, you would also vomit blood. And if you were um, one of those unlucky people, which was about 80% of the people who got infected, you would be dead sometime between two and seven days. Um, that was a the, the longest rate that you would live is about eight days. So it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, and obviously there's not a lot of today firsthand people that, that, you know, could tell us about it, but we do have a lot of literature from those that did live during the time that suggested that this was very much like we would think of like the walking dead, um, in that the world has fallen apart. Society is crumbling and you're, the, people are sick and dying. As a matter of fact, the, the term quarantine actually comes from this period of time. Something that I did not know until I started this uh, particular research. Quarantine became really a predominant word during during the uh, the Black Death. Now, how does it? Where did it come from, and and how did it spread? Well, medieval authors say that it started basically west of China, but still in Asia somewhere. Um, they called it the Land of Darkness. We believe it was probably Central Asia, like Tibet, maybe Mongolia. Um, there's no definitive proof that you can't you can't just say it started, say, in this area at this date. But the medieval authors all say that it spread east into China. So we know that it spread into China. So it was in that particular area. And what happens is it begins to spread very quickly because of the Mongols. The Mongols are invading and expanding their territory, and they're carrying it with them. Again, most likely it started in that area, so that was easy for them to spread it. And also European travelers and merchants are going back and forth across the, uh, the trade routes. So you see these Mongol armies and these traders are beginning to bring the plague from Central Asia to Eastern Europe. So... Very um, simply put, commerce, for the most part, commerce and war. Now, the Mongol armies actually begin using this as a form of, of military um, tactics. This actually, it, it's funny because historians call this the first recorded use of biological warfare in history. But through my research, um, people say it's actually mismatic warfare. Um, because they didn't understand germs, so it couldn't be biological warfare. So from our standards, it's biological warfare, but from their standards, because they believed that it was from smells, 
it was from bad vapors. Um, the disease was caused by um, that. So the stench caused it. So, so it, you know, that's a technicality. You know, we can say it's the first biological warfare and be fine with that. So what the Mongols did is they basically took their dead and dying and they put them on catapults and deposited them into the city. The city had walls. The city was not going to surrender. They threw their dead and dying across and surprise, um, the city of Kaffa fell pretty quickly. Um, it's the opposite you know. of Black Hawk Down right there. Exactly. Exactly. We're not, we're not going back for our fallen brothers. We're tossing them over the walls in a catapult. Yeah. Different, yeah. Whole, that, different view of warfare, yeah. <laughs> and a very dark Monty Python clip. <laughs> it, it, it's very, I mean, can you imagine the person, I, I mean, I've already read the, the symptoms of the Black Death. Can you imagine suffering from the Black Death and then, you know, them literally dragging you half dead to a catapult and saying, bye. Um, I mean, that's that's a terrifying thing to even think about. I guess you could only hope that's a faster death. I don't know than than dying from well, the disease. Well, hitting from the catapult, it's definitely something. gonna be faster. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So you know, it's 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 interesting. The Mongols figured this out. They, I mean, they didn't know what caused it, but they figured, hey, we can spread this. So they they people tend to think about the Mongols as being not that sophisticated, not that smart. Basically, the nomads, the the the. Uh, you know, the, the great evil of that particular time. And yet they figured out what that, that they could use this. And they did. Um, problem with Kaffa is it wasn't just a, a big city with walls. It was also a port city. Right. It was one of those <laughs> port cities that all those Asian goodies came across the Silk Road, um, you know, spices and gold and all that good stuff. And then they would move it to um, the Italian city states by ship. So we all know that merchant ships, what do all merchant ships have? I mean, even today. Rats. I mean, I lived in Galveston for four years and you would drive down the streets and you would see these things. You go, oh man, there's a big, nope, not a dog. Um, You know, river (laughs) rats um, that were coming off these ships. Well, the merchant ships that are bringing these Asian goods from Kaffa and and the Eastern Mediterranean have rats. And what do rats have? Of course, they have fleas. And um, the fleas are the ones that are carrying the plague, at least initially. And um, although some evidence does suggest that once it it took hold in Europe, and this is new evidence that has been over the last 20 years that a lot of people really don't um, know, is that um, it began to actually spread person to person after it became prevalent. Um, most historians have for a long period of time basically made the argument that it was always the flea bite. And now evidence is suggesting that no, actually it did become available through person to person, um, contagion. So, and and that, that explains the the spread because this, the spread was approximately 0.3, or three tenths of a mile to 3.7 miles per day. That is the average of infection. And you think about Europe at this time, we're talking the middle of the 1300s. No cars, no trains, no airplanes. Three miles is a long way to go. Um, I mean, especially it's 3.7 miles per day. That's almost four miles a day um, at its height. That's pretty quick. So 
And that's fast. Um, I mean, that's farther than a lot of people would would walk in a day. So yeah. it's it's it, it's jumping from person to person, kind of jumping ahead of the people themselves. Exactly. And and one thing to think about: a lot of people say, "Well, why wasn't Europe prepared for this?" I mean, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, we we've all understood by by this time medicine, right? Well, the answer is no. Um, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks, they understood medicine. They understood hygiene. Um, but when the Christian kingdoms rose up out of the fall of the Roman Empire, they basically wiped that all away. Their argument, um, as short-sighted as it, as it is, is that this was pagan technology. And why in the world would you want to use pagan technology? I'll be quite clear. I don't, you know, I don't care about my religion enough to give up um, using running water and toilet uh, and an indoor toilet. Um, I would gladly give up religion before I gave up those things. Um, but these people were willing to do that. And so the hygiene was terrible. Um, Europe was a mess politically. They'd been fighting different wars over the last hundred years, including ironically, the hundred years war. Um, so you have this situation where Europe is politically just a mess. They've lost a lot of people already because of warfare and then they had years of famine that basically ruined a lot of these people's immune systems. So in in many ways, this was if if there was going to be a worldwide pandemic, and we do consider this a worldwide pandemic, even though it's only Europe and Asia, because this was basically the known world at the time. You know, the, the, the North and South America obviously are going to be insulated from all this stuff until we basically show up there in 1492 and say, hey, we're here. Um, and then at that point, they're going to get it all at once. You know, it's going to be a just a, a shot of adrenaline of all the good European diseases. Um, but the bubonic plague spread very quickly. Um, it, it started out mainly on the coast. And then by about a year into it, it had gone as far as Frankfurt um, and Vienna. And then by early to mid 1349, you're talking it's in Prague and Bucharest. Um, and then by 1350, 1351, it's it's in Copenhagen, places like Copenhagen, Warsaw, um, even St. even St. Petersburg or, or what would become St. Petersburg. Um, St. Petersburg area obviously was St. Petersburg it's, as itself is not there, but those particular rural areas of Russia are going to get it. Um, Moscow was not affected. Now, Moscow is the only major city in Russia at this time, um, at least that we would consider Moscow and then Kiev. And Kiev is going to be hit very hard. Moscow, still very small comparison to Kiev, not going to be not going to be hurt that badly. And that's one of the reasons when you look at the history of Russia, you're going to see them begin to shift towards Moscow. Um, and again, why is it that places like Copenhagen, Warsaw, um, Moscow, why is the infection rate going to be so much less than, say, um, places like um, Barcelona, Rome, um, Florence? Climate and density of population? That, obviously. But the other reason is the weather, the cold. Um you know, people are so spread out and they're not being able to pass it because they're not gathering in big groups. Um, 
in some places, it's weird because in some places the warm weather helps because people are outside and they're being able to spread out. But in places like Russia, where you've got such large tracts of land where there's nothing in between, that cold weather basically stops them from traveling so they're not able to spread it. So, you know, the, the Russian bear, the Russian winter, um, and, and, and other of those countries, obviously, um, did help quite a bit. Now, what were the, the facts of the, of the Black Death? Like, how many people were, you know, offed in this? Um, well, what we know for sure is that approximately somewhere between 75 and 200 million people were killed worldwide. We know that the population was approximately 475 million um, at, before this happened. And then not counting infants that died, you know, at birth or, or shortly after, um, the population was about 350 million by the end of the 14th century. So it, it, it did not recover much at all by the end of, you know, we're talking 1350s by 1400 you're looking at maybe still about 100, 125,000 below that number. So that, that just shows how many people were killed. Um, we know for a fact that the, the population of the world, what it was in 1300, did not recover until 1500. So it took 150 years for the population to get back to what it was. Now, 75 to 85 percent of people who lived in Mediterranean uh, Mediterranean Europe died. Um, so if you lived along the Mediterranean Sea, 85, 75 to 85 percent of the people that were there were gone. Um, that was just a, a very hard area. Um, it, trans, it, it, it just the, the contagion just infected very fast um, and they just had no answer for it. Um, Northern Europe, as I said before, because of the cold, because of the vast um, expanses of these different areas, um, only 20 to 30 percent of your of Europeans that lived in the northern part of European died. Um, but when you average that in, about 35 to 50 percent of overall European population will die in four years. OK, now, where does that compare with the more modern pandemics? Well. The Spanish flu, which was from 1918 to 1920, which is an H1N1 influenza, um, it killed approximately 20 million to 50 million people. At least that's the conservative estimate. I've seen estimates that said it was 200 million, but no serious scholar will will accept those numbers. Um, We do know that the Spanish for the Spanish flu one-third of the population was infected. About 500 million cases of Spanish flu. Approximately 3 to 5% of the world population was killed in that. Um, to look at our current situation, COVID-19, which started in 2019, um, which is a SARS-CoV-2 uh, respiratory virus, which is, by the way, the deadliest respiratory virus since the Spanish flu, um, I believe currently I looked this up that there were 267 million plus infected today. That's today's number. Um, uh, December 8th, 2021, when we're recording this, um, f- approximately 5 million have died 
at least that's from the World Health Organization as of today, that's 1.97% of the world's population. Now, again, 5 million people, that's a lot of people. But comparative to, say, the Spanish flu and then the Black Death, it's it's a very small number. Um, and po- and percentage-wise, much smaller. Um, so the question that we're going to have to ask over the next couple of years, and this is something that a lot of research is going to have to go on about, is where does COVID stand as a societal and cultural change in comparison to the Spanish flu and the Black Death. The Black Death, there were lots of societal and cultural changes. There were very few from the Spanish flu. Um, You could make the argument, and I think you would be correct in saying this, that the uh, we, we learned nothing from the Spanish flu. Very little, at least. I mean, we were... We were wearing masks um, in 1918, 1919. Um, We were quarantining. We were doing all the things that we're doing now. And there were few, obviously. There there were some people out there that didn't want to do it. But the vast majority of the people in the world that were were dealing with this, they did it. Um, Fast forward 101 years um, to the next great pandemic, and we have people who were basically stamping their feet and saying they didn't want to do it. Um, so I think that, you know, when you compare these two events to to um to the black to the Black Death or COVID-19, however you want to compare them, um, I think that when we look at COVID-19, I think there's gonna be a, a lot of societal changes that will line up with what happened after the Black Death. I'm not so sure that, as we talked about, you know, there, there are the, the conspiracy theories out there. There's some people who are never going to change what they believe in. But I do believe that we're already seeing some of the changes that we're going to touch upon when it comes to the Black Death. Um, and so before I, I go over those, uh, did you either of you have anything um, you wanted to add? Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you um, have to say about the consequences of the Black Death versus the consequences of COVID. Because I, I have thought, as we've been going through this COVID pandemic and people are drawing, drawing comparisons to the Spanish flu, it always has felt kind of unsatisfactory to compare it to the Spanish flu because, yeah, you can't really point to a whole lot of changes that came out of the Spanish flu. You can point to a whole lot of changes that came out of the Black Death. There's religious yep. consequences, political consequences, social consequences. You know, international. You, you know, some people argue that the Black, the Black Death leads directly or indirectly to the you know the European conquest of the rest of the world. There's some pretty dramatic consequences Absolutely. you can point to. Industrial from the Black revolution, Death. industrial I mean, revolution, the Renaissance, the Renaissance. Yes, yeah, and so there's there's a whole vast literature of stuff that historians have said have come out of the Black Death. And yeah, coming out of the Spanish flu, yeah, there's not really anything comparable to that. I mean, it, it, it coming out of, it was coinciding with kind of the Definitely. drawing down of World War One, yeah. but you can't really, the, it, the disease itself didn't really spark a whole lot of change. World War One, you know, the whole lost generation and all of that. So, yeah. I mean, there's obvious some societal changes that came with that, and some military changes. But yeah, you can't point quite point to it. So, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing where you uh, what, what you have to say on that. And, and 
And what's funny about this is, is my area of expertise is World War One, And I always find it striking that, you know, when they're talking about the Spanish flu, um, just to go off on the side, it's amazing to me because more Americans died of the Spanish flu and other diseases in World War One than were killed by belligerent actions. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, that's not even like a... Um, that's not even hyperbole. I mean, the majority of American soldier deaths were from disease, and a, and a good portion of that was from the Spanish flu. Um, my great or my grandfather, my grandfather, my my grandmother was his second wife. He married her when he was late forties. He was a World War One veteran. Um, his first wife and unborn child died in the Spanish flu here in America, in the United States. So, I mean, I think if you dig deep enough. Um, a lot of people do have some kind of, um, I guess, relationship with the Spanish flu. But I think the problem a lot of times with Spanish flu is that unlike the Black Death, where one in every two people either died or um, knew someone that died, um, the Spanish flu, I just don't think what I don't think it affected enough people that it made a lasting impression. They were scared for a period of time, and then they kind of got over it. We've all taken history classes, especially in high school and college. How many of you learned about the Spanish flu in your college or high school classes? I didn't. Never heard very, of it. Very, very in passing. Yeah. World I, War I, I, oh yeah, there was also a disease happening too, but... Moving yeah. on, let's move on to the 20s. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, they, they went from World War One. If they did mention it, it was like a second, and then they went under the Treaty of Versailles, and let's talk about the Roaring Twenties and all those era of, of let the good times roll and all that. And um, It's amazing to me that, 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 like I said, I don't feel as though anyone learned their lesson. You know, right after the Spanish flu, people stopped shaking hands, people stopped hugging and kissing strangers. Um, we all know Parisians are very big, French are very big into greeting with kisses, um, they stopped that for about four or five years. And then what they do, we went right back to it. We shake hands, we hug and kiss. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the black death, we got back to doing some of those things, but it took decades to do that. We went back to doing that within a few years of the Spanish flu. Um, I, I don't know if we learned our lesson this time or if we're going to go back to you know, shaking hands. Um, you know, I had a contractor at my house today and when he showed up, he said, hi, my name's so-and-so. And we said hi from afar, both vaccinated. We still didn't shake hands. So maybe we finally broken this and we've learned our lesson. I don't believe we have. Um, I think we're going to go right back to it at some point. Now, so let's just, I mean, let's look at some of the results and, and maybe some comparisons to today. Um, the first one I always like to talk about is religious decline. And this sometimes upsets people because they're like, well, how can religious decline be, a pos decline be a positive thing? You know, especially for our religious friends out there who would never see this as a positive. Well, first of all, I'd ask if they were a Protestant or not, because if they're a Protestant, this is very important for them. Uh, if they're Catholics, I can understand them being upset with this, but. <laughs> You know, during the Black Death, the clergy hid inside their churches and monasteries, and you can't blame them. I mean, look at us. We're, we all hid in our houses for, you know, months on, on end during the yeah. COVID-19 pandemic, unless you had to go out. 
Um, you know, I don't know about you guys. I work from home a hundred percent. I don't leave my house. My wife, she's a physician. She can't stay home. She had to go out every day. I don't know about you, Jimmy, whether you guys were shut down or not, but I'm sure you probably had to go out of the house at some point. Um, it, it's hard. It's, it's definitely difficult. Um, but the clergy, they weren't taking that chance. And this was a society that was very religious. I mean, you know, we're talking 99% of the people that lived at this time. You might have the one heretic out there in your community, but they were very hard to find. There was no atheist running around. There was no big agnostic groups at this time. I mean, if there were, they usually got rounded up and taken care of. But the clergy, they hid, they hid inside their churches and their monasteries. And when people became sick and they were dying, you know, a very important part of the Catholic uh, rituals is last rites. And the priests wouldn't even come out and give last rites. They'd basically stand on the balcony of their church and, and do like a, a blanket last rites. And they'd have people marching the coffin. And I say coffins, boxes, basically, um, down the street. And many people began to question this. They said, wait a minute. If the clergy, if our if our God's anointed cannot come out and help God's people during a crisis like this, what good what good are they? So not only is the authority of the clergy going to be questioned at this time and and the church itself or established churches, they also begin to start asking the question about God himself. What kind of God do we have? Why would a God do this to us? Why would he kill 30, 40, 50% of our population. Um, and this was still a group of people who believed that, you know, when things like this happened, it was because God did it. So when people begin to question all these things, they start to privatize religion. And this is going to be a very positive thing because you begin to see the roots. It won't happen for another 150 years, 170 years basically, but you begin to see the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther would not have done what he did in the early 1500s if basically the mindset of questioning the church hadn't already started. Because we all forget that Martin Luther, you know, everybody talks about Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, but they forget that he was a Catholic uh, priest, a monk. And he basically was questioning why the Catholic Church was doing corrupt things. You know, you have to ask the question, would he have done that if this seed wasn't already planted? We, we can't answer that definitively, but I would argue probably not, or at least not in 1519. It might have been 1720 or, you know, whatever. It would have maybe happened eventually, but not when it did. So I think religious decline is very important. Now, this one compared to COVID-19 is going to be hard to say. Be and the reason I say that is we're already in the middle of a major religious decline. You know, we've got a modern world. Um, you know, things are good. They always say it's easy to not be religious when things are good, um, although things haven't been good the last two years. Um, but we've never had numbers, at least through the times that we've been able to poll where people will say they are non-religious or atheist or agnostic like they are today. 
Um, I believe I saw a poll recently that showed that unaffiliated and non-believers was the largest group in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that the largest group in the United States doesn't believe in God. It just means that they either are non-believers, that they don't believe in God, or they don't go to church in some form. Um, that's huge compared to the Black Death, when 99.9% .9 of the people believed in God. Um, so I don't know how this is, I don't know how the Black Death is going to, or how, how COVID-19 in comparison to the Black Death is going to work, simply because we were already in the major, in the middle of a major um, religious decline. Will religion go up because of COVID-19? Or will it continue to go down and go down much quicker because you see how some of the uh, how some of the churches have behaved? You know, for every good church that's behaved, you you've got currently in the state of Delaware, we've got churches suing our governor because they don't want any kind of restrictions ever again. Um, you know, how many people will get turned off by that and say, "Wait a minute, they are willing to send us to church." or make us come into church um, instead of trying to do what's right for us and safe. You know, I don't know where that answer is, and I, I'm not sure that we will know for another 30 or 40 years, but I think it's interesting. I, I think it's something that's interesting to study is where will religion be in comparison to today due to COVID-19? What do you think about the interpretation and i don't have any historians that actually made this that, that i can cite that have this interpretation um but one of the things that um i always thought was interesting to kind of think about in the wake of the black death was for the people that survived and retained a faith in god and all of that did the black death create a certainty among those people that their version of Christianity must have been right because they were the ones that survived? And did that lead to a more aggressive um, Christianity that was dedicated to converting people that much more, which might have driven some of the exploration urge in the, you know, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries? Um, Obviously, we know that, you know, all the Europeans going out to the New World and all that, many of them were pursuing money and resources and all that, too. Yes. But there at least was a component of religious conversion in there, too. And so I've always kind of toyed with the idea that the the Black Death, the people that survived the Black Death came out of it believing that we were the chosen people. And therefore, it is our job to go out and, and impose our vision on the on the rest of the world, so to speak. I don't know. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not an expert on this. I'm a modern U S sure. historian, but this has popped up in survey courses and I've always thought it was a kind of a compelling idea. It, so I'm curious what your thought on that. You know, I don't know. I, that's an interesting question because my gut would tell me, and I have no s historical or scientific proof of this. I have no poll polling data or anything on this, but my guess would be that these people were already so fanatical anyway um mm -hmm. again you know if you could go back in time to 1450 or 1350 europe you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone that would argue against what you just said they all were Fair god's enough. chosen people there was only one remember there was only really one universal church that was the catholic church sure the 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 orthodox church is beginning to 
this is beginning around the same time when the Orthodox Church is about to split. But we forget that the, and a lot of people forget that the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, the only real disagreement they had was whether they would follow Latin or Greek principles and mm-hmm. who was going to be their leader, the Pope or the Patriarch. Um, you look at them and they're basically the same religion, just fighting over who's in charge and how they're going to do the crossing and all of that. Um, so I don't, I mean, could they, we know there were zealots out there, um, you know, the, the people that were running from town to town, attacking Jews, blaming them for the black death because they were, Obviously, they're always going to be blamed for everything um, throughout European history, but it was their fault. They caused it, um, you know, but I don't I, I, I don't think we can ever say for sure that that the survivors of the Black Death made society more fanatical. I think society was fanatical and just the people who survived became more vocal about it. Um, I don't think, I don't think anyone had a true conversion after the black death and said, I'm going to be now super Christian. You know what I mean? I'm going to be super Catholic (laughs) and I'm going to run the run around and convert everybody because I think they already believed that it's just Mm -hmm. now after the black death, maybe they felt the need to actually enact it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, that I, I, again, I would say that there's a different reason for you know the discovery of the new world um a a woman i trained under one time used to say that there were three g's uh the three g's of the of the american um experience for for european countries gold glory and god and it was usually in that order Mm -hmm. um you know you know which a lot of people don't want to hear but these people came for gold they came for glory and if they brought God with them, hey, that's cool. But as long as we get the first two, I mean, Francisco Pizarro, I don't think he really cared about converting the the Inca. He cared about the gold no. and silver he was going to get. And he cared about his name being in the history books um, and the glories that we would talk about. And look, we still talk about Francisco Pizarro. What is it? 500 years later? Um, probably almost, I think it's almost exactly next, uh, next decade is going to be 500 years from him taking over the Inca empire. We still yep. talk about Hernan Cortez. Um, that was a hundred years ago, I believe 100. last year, 1519, um, or I guess two years ago now. Um, think about that a minute. They can you know, they always preached that they were coming for God, but it was mm-hmm. always the gold and the glory that was first. Those were the things that they were really interested in. So but but I mean we can we can jump into that. That's actually on my list. Um, it, it's a little further down, but let's go to it because I think that you bringing it up is very important. That a lot of people in Europe now that the Black Death is over, and this is where we're at now. You know, Black Death's over, so these are the results of it. We talked about religious decline, but a major aspect of it is that the that the overland trade route that they were using now became too dangerous. They were afraid of infection. So they're getting all their goodies from China and India and the Indies, which we now know as the Philippines and that area. Um, They were very concerned about their goodies getting infected somewhere between, you know, the, the Far East or the Spice regions and Europe. 
So a lot of them began to look to get rid of not only the overland trade route, but financially to cut out the middleman. And obviously, these European nations are going to begin to look for a direct trade route to Asia. So it's no surprise that here we are, this is 1350, and what, Portugal starts their um, their um, search for the direct water route to Asia in the early 1400s. You know, uh, Prince Henry the Navigator and all of that, that's going to be in the early 1400s. So you know, a lot of these European countries are already thinking ahead and saying, what if we could go get that stuff directly? We won't have to worry about infection anymore. And by the way, who were the merchants at the time that, that are getting going to get blamed for spreading this? It's the Italian city-states. They were the ones that were spreading this, and they didn't know what they were doing, but they were the merchants that were spreading all of the goodies throughout Europe, but they were also spreading the disease. And one side effect of this is that the Italian city-states economies will collapse after the Black Death, and they won't recover. And if you look at Italy as a country, Italy as an actual country will not exist until the mid-1800s, because basically the, the papal states are the only ones that are really holding it together because the other economies have collapsed. Even Florence, as great as we talk about during the Renaissance, it had a great time during the Renaissance, but it was nowhere near as wealthy as it was, you know, when they were still running all the uh, the, the the merchant uh, money. So, you know, you think about this a minute that the exploration that we will do in the 1400s, especially the late 1400s and the early 1500s are going to come out of, you know, the Black Death. So you have to ask yourself this question. We, we don't really have much to explore here in, in on Earth now. Um, you know, maybe some of the deepest parts of the ocean, obviously. Will we begin to explore more, maybe not out of fear of infection, but maybe because we're worried about resources or um, disease? I mean, we can argue that some of the reason for COVID-19 spread is we have too many people on the planet. We're too close together. We can get to each other so much quicker. I mean, 200 years ago, it would take you, what, two or three months to go from where I'm in here in Delaware to where Jimmy is in California. It would take two to three months because you might have to stop for a month or two or three um, before you could cross the mountains if you got there at the wrong time. Just ask the Donner Party. They can tell you all about that. Uh, (laughs) They should have maybe stopped for a few months. you know, so will this lead to a new era of exploration? I wonder. I, I really do believe that maybe this is going to be one of those positives of the Black Death that we're going to see because we're already talking about it. Um, Michael Strahan's gone to space tomorrow. Um, we just sent William Shatner a few, what, about a month ago. Um, you're really seeing a ramp up of um, commercial space flights. They're already talking before COVID-19. They were talking about, you know, manned missions to Mars. We're talking about going back to the moon. Um, Is this the beginning of us spreading out across the solar system, at least? You know, I don't know. Science fiction um, enthusiasts would say yes. Um, 
I'm a little more skeptical of that. Um, I fall more in the Bill Maher school of why would you want to leave here? We have air and all this stuff. Why don't we make this place better? Um, you know, but, you know, it is something to think about. Like, what what will drive us after this is over to do something extraordinary like these people did? You know, unless you were Native American, most people will agree that this was a – this was – this was the foundation of the global world, the um, the voyages of Columbus in 1492. These would not have happened when they did if the Black Death didn't begin to make people say, what if we could go somewhere and get those goodies ourselves? So, I mean, it's an interesting look at that. Um, and, and yes, like you said before, I mean, you, you know, I'm sure, you know, spreading religion did have a small but very powerful motivation on these people as well but obviously the gold was the most important thing and they got that they 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 got that so so they were successful in that yeah, i'm really interested to see what the um the artistic impact will be you know you think back to chaucer and you think back to the decameron um, some of the great literatures that came out of the the Black Death. What will it be now? Will there be yeah. Will there be the uh, the next Wes Anderson movie or a Jordan Peele movie that's inspired by, or yeah, or, <laughs> or has been influenced by COVID nineteen? Um, you know, how will Jordan yeah. Peele weave uh, weave a narrative <laughs> of race, systemic racism in America along with COVID nineteen to create the next horror movie that we all love? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, they were talking about, I don't know if anybody's seen the new Halloween movie that came out, the Halloween, I think it's Halloween Kills. Well, there, there's some talk that Halloween Ends is going to be uh, one of the main storylines for the next, supposedly the final Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis, is going to have something to do with politics and COVID-19. Now, can you imagine a Michael Myers slasher movie that set during a global pandemic, you would have never written something like that 20, 30. I mean, I think it's almost, what is it? 40. It was, it's over 40 years now um, that, that the Halloween movies first started. Mm -hmm. You would never have thought about that, but you know, you bring that up and that's, you know, something that's definitely on my list as well as the psychological aspects of the black death. And, when you look at the psychological aspect, the obvious one is basically that death, after the Black Death, the idea of death begins to cling to the human imagination. It's no longer just something that you do. Um, you look at the art during the Black Death, the uh, Danse Macabre, um, this idea of the dance of death, where before you don't see these... Um, these uh, paintings of of death and mayhem and um i i don't have them in front of me right now i had them earlier but you know you've got these battlefields and instead of it just being people there's like skeletons dancing and skeletons you know having drinks and stuff like that and you look at that and you think well that's you know yeah they've gone through a really terrible thing obviously but i would argue that that changed our society forever because after the Black Death, you begin to see them really ramp up ghost stories. And 
with what within a couple hundred years you know you see frankenstein you see drank dracula um the sale you know the witch trials and everything witches became very very important in the 14 and 1500s in europe now obviously they stopped believing in them when the americans were still really focused on yep. them in the 1600s but what was the big movies the or what were we obsessed with the last i'd say 20 years when you're when you tv and movie what were the big basically boogeyman of horror in the last 20 years what were they zombies zombie movies mm -hmm. and i mean you think about and zombie movies all have the same kind of theme it's usually a plague or some kind of government thing that creates zombies so you know i can't wait to see the the you know art of course our art has changed obviously so yes jordan peele would be a great example um but I'd love to see maybe what art art, you know, like maybe if, if, if paintings change again, um, it seems like paintings had gone back to maybe watercolors of, of, um, you know, landscapes and you're seeing a lot of impressionist art here in the modern day. Will we go back to something more, um, dark, um, more almost horrific, um, I really personally, from from every research I've ever done, I really truly believe that our modern fascination with horror started in this time, um, at least when it comes to the undead or the, you know, things, things like that, like zombies and vampires and, you know, the the things that can come back and get you. I really do believe that while there were always those stories in our in our past um, and there was always the myths and everything that we really started almost in a way this is the beginning of the maybe the early stages of commercialization of horror um not necessarily it's gonna take a long time to get there especially you know movies and tv has been over the la last hundred years um it's hard to say that now isn't it I, <laughs> I i used to remember when my mother would talk about the 50 years of tv and the 50 year you know 50 60 years of movies and now we're over a hundred years of movies. I mean, we're coming up what in 10, 10, 10, 15 years, we're coming up to the hundred years of what the wizard of Oz and, and um, you know, we've already passed some of these black and white films. Um, so that, I mean, to me, that's a very interesting result of the black death is how it changed basically pop culture um, in the modern day. And you don't think of something that happens as far back as 1350 being able to, influence popular culture but in a very nuanced way it can because all it has to do is basically one generation begin to be have have a fascination with death and they pass it on you know they begin to pass it on and it grows and it snowballs to the point that we have i don't know we've got the walking dead on tv we've got all these zombie movies um you know to me it's 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 a very interesting um discussion on uh pop culture and plague and it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens obviously i think it's going to take 15 20 years but uh, i think it's going to be very interesting to see what what movies and tv shows are made that are going to be plague um uh topics i think it should be very interesting 
yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way that the Black Death kind of fostered a, or kind of along this line of thinking, the Black Death kind of created a sense of death. Because death, it's natural, but also unnatural because it's happening at a time that you don't expect it to be happening. And mm-hmm. so in the old days before something like the Black Death came through, you kind of had this general sense that this is what your lifespan is going to be. You know, war and all that might change things a bit, but suddenly out of nowhere, this invisible force comes and starts killing people yeah. <laughs> basically before their time. And and you don't get higher stakes than that. And so when you're thinking about, you know, drama and what gets people's attention, nothing gets people's attention like death. I mean, that's why, Absolutely. you know, the most pop- the most popular TV series out there are like, you know, medical dramas because you're, you're literal life, life and death. And law and order shows where there's always somebody died at the beginning of it. And so you got to bring the killer to justice and all of that. And so I can totally see how that kind of obviously there was, you know, premature death before then, but not at this type of a scale, like you're saying, where everybody knows somebody who was taken before their time or or what they kind of popularly conceived of as their time. So, yeah. And I mean, high estimate again. I mean, just to go back to that high estimate again, the high estimate's uh, 50%. 50% of Europe is dead after this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if 50% of the European, 35 to 50% of the European population, so between a, th- a third and a half of the European population, just in five years is gone. They're gone. Um, five years seems like, well, you know, that many people dying in five years, that's no big deal. It's it's a huge deal when you're looking at a population of maybe 475, 500 million, you know, people. I mean, if you're talking about 475 million people and somewhere between 75 million and 200 million are killed of that number, you're talking about that's a large amount of people in just five years. So, you know, don't let the statistics fool you you know, when you're looking at this, because it, it did, it happened so quickly. And basically every, if you lined up three people, either one or two of those people were dead after this event, depending on, um, you know, your, your, uh, depending, and it always depended on where you were at too. You know, you, you had a much better, as I said before, um, 20 to 30% of these, of the Europeans died in Northern Europe. But that number was 75 to 85% died in the Mediterranean. And that's not even talking about China. I mean, I I didn't bring up China statistics, but 30% of the Chinese population died in two years. So 30% of the Chinese population died, what, within 24 months? I mean, that's a large amount of people to just disappear. Um, The way I describe it is basically if aliens came down tomorrow and basically kidnapped half of the world's population imagine when you wake up the next morning how empty this place is and that's actually one of the things that i think is going to be one of the interesting things to see come out of out of the out of the covid pandemic is that in the past like when we when we teach those and talk tell those numbers to students it's kind of hard to kind of conceptualize that but what's going to be interesting is that, and I don't know if this is true for 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 you guys where you are, but here in Central Ohio, since the pandemic has happened, we have been hit hard by um, um, job openings, unfilled job openings, 
And so every restaurant you go to is short-staffed. And so there's always lines out the door. There's supply line problems. There's serving problems. Uh, restaurants can't find work. I mean, we've all, there's been thousands of news articles out there for the last, last year or so about how hard it is to find workers. And so it's going to be interesting to see how well students going forward are going to be able to comprehend what that's what that's like what you're saying where you wake up one day and there's and there's just a lot of people gone we're kind of going through that now it's not it's not the same it's not at the same scale like Obviously, you said i yes. mean it's, but it's no it's not 50% of the population is dead and gone but even <laughs> at the lower levels that we're seeing we're seeing a huge amount of societal impact even with a much smaller percentage of the population affected by the disease. And so it's hitting us in ways that are mildly inconvenient at this point. I don't want to, sure. you know, I don't want to pretend that, you know, having too few servers at a restaurant is the same cataclysmic <laughs> consequence yes, as the black death, but, but you're, we're feeling Depends it on a very on small, well, right. <laughs> and how long I have to wait at the drive through or something. Yeah. Exactly. So, so right now it feels like kind of like it's a minor inconvenience, but it's a very noticeable inconvenience right now. Absolutely. And so it's going to be interesting going forward to be able to use this as kind of a starting point for a discussion of what <laughs> happens to a culture or a society when a third of the people are literally dead or a half yeah. of the people or even higher, depending on where you are. So it's going, to, it's going to be really interesting to be able to use this as kind of a, a starting point for discussion. You can say, do you remember in 2021 how, you know, how long you had to wait in the McDonald's drive-thru exactly. to, get, to exactly. get your burger? <laughs> and now multiply that by a thousand or, or yeah. whatever, whatever you exactly. want to do to kind of get that. Kind of, so it's because it, I'm frustrated constantly whenever I go get sure. pick up, you know, curbside and, and. You know, it takes it takes a half hour for them to bring my. I go to Target and get curbside. It takes them a long time to get the stuff yep. out just because they don't have anybody working right now. Absolutely. So it's those little inconveniences will um, hopefully give people kind of an entry point to understanding how these larger things can operate. Well, and and that's a very important uh, part of the um, the results of the Black Death, and I like to call this the plague economy. Um, you know, after the Black Death, there's two main things you really want to talk about is the reduction of the workforce and the decrease in population. And these are both very positive things. Now, you might say, well, how are they going to be positive? Well, they're positive for 98% of the people of Europe. Most people today, we all think of ourselves as, you know, we're, we're all rich in one way or another. Even if you're poor, you're always like, well, you know, one day I'm going to be rich. So you, we're not real hard on rich people, um, whether, whether you pay whether you pay no taxes or you pay $100,000 in taxes, you always see yourself as temporarily not rich. You know, everyone in America is temporarily not rich. No one is middle class or poor. They're all just, we'll be rich eventually if, if just one more thing happens for us. And in the Black Death, the period of time before the Black Death, let's face it, 98, 99% of the population was poor. They were born poor. And they were going to die poor. There was no social ladder. As a matter of fact, when you look at the manor system or feudalism, whether you want to call it serfdom, however you want to define what these people were living through at the time, it was like a social ladder without rungs. If you were born nobility, it didn't matter if you lost all your money, you would still be better than the poor people who had more money than you because you were born into the nobility. You could be the lord of nothing and still be better than the people who 
are doing terrible, but better than you. Um, so the reduction of workforce, this is a great thing for the people that are living at this time. As a matter of fact, I like to argue that this was the transition, the beginning of capitalism in the world. Um, and, and I say that because before the Black Death, again, peasants knew their place. The poor knew their place in society. But after the Black Death, the peasants began to know something, something very dangerous for the elites. They did not know their place anymore. They began to question authority, both politically, which I'll get into in a little bit, but economically. So first thing is the nobility and clergy have all the land, basically. And they make most of their money by planting and harvesting um, crops and then selling them um, whether it's for food or for raw materials for something else. Well, now the nobility, they have no one to work their fields. And let's face it, do you think the nobility and the clergy want to work their fields? No. So the peasants that survive, which again is about half, they begin to demand higher wages. And the higher wages increase buying power. And this is very important for what you said. You know, I have a lot of people that I talk to and they tell me, they give me the woes of the restaurant industry. And they say, I heard this from a restaurant down the street from me. They said, yeah, we can't find employees because employees don't want to work. Well, that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. I think anyone who says that is totally ignorant of the situation. No, what yes. happened is restaurants got shut down here in the state of Delaware. Restaurants got shut down for four months. So these people who make, what is it, $2 an hour plus tips, they were laid off. And the government did, for a while, give them unemployment benefits. But they said to themselves, this is not going to happen forever. What if my restaurant doesn't survive? So you know what they did? They went online and they found themselves a better job. They got themselves a job in a call center where they can do it right from home. They can sit in front of their computer, log in, and do telemarketing right from home. And instead of making $2 an hour plus tips, they can make $12 an hour or $15 an hour. Now, I ask you this. I mean, we're all lucky. We all have careers where we do very well. Um, my question is, how many of us with our good careers and make a decent living are willing to go back to work in a restaurant just because we have loyalty to our previous boss. Well, if you did that, you'd be insane. I mean, especially with all of us, with our, you know, all of the college that we've been through and all the hard work we've done, you don't want to give up a better job to go back to a job that, sure, you had fun doing it, you made money, but you found something better. And so I really do believe in a lot of ways the COVID-19 pandemic, much like the Black Death, allowed peasants, and I'm going to say that the word because, mo let's face it, most of the people that work in the restaurant industry, unless you're management or you're a chef, you're basically living paycheck to paycheck or um, half a paycheck to paycheck. I mean, sometimes, you know, you don't even get a full paycheck when you work in a restaurant. Um, now these peasants or people... They demand higher wages to return to the restaurant. And a lot of the restaurants here where I live, we, we have a beach. This is a beach resort. 
The restaurants have had to do signing bonuses. They've said they're going to start paying minimum wage for certain, you know, uh, people. Um, you're oh, we're going to give minimum wage as a guarantee for our full time, not restaurant minimum wage, but actual minimum wage. If you do not make it in tips, um, one of the local pizza places has has already announced that in order to get more employees, instead of two dollars an hour, they're going to guarantee ten dollars an hour unless you make it up in your tips. So a lot of people are now demanding higher wages or they're just going to go find another job. And that does increase their buying power. It makes the economy stronger. The other thing about this I, I really enjoy is, again, I think we already kind of touched upon this, but the reduced workforce means there's less people to do the jobs. So what are you going to do when there's not enough people to do the jobs? Well, you got to start thinking about how do I make the job easier? So you begin to see in this time, 1350, 1360, primitive industrialization. They're going to begin to build tools to help them do work with a smaller population. Things like mills and the printing press are going to come out because we all know how books were written before the Black Death. You just got a whole bunch of people together, aka clergy, and you told them copy these pages and they would do an assembly line of writing a book, or some of them would just write the whole book, you know? And we all know that that's just not feasible to, to make sure that every person can read or write. Um, you know, you, you have to have a, a, an educated populace, and the reason Europe was so uneducated at that time was partially because not everybody could get a book. Um, not even everybody could have a Bible. I mean, we don't even think about that is, you know, we just assume, well, everyone had a Bible and that's not true either. Um, most, most towns only had one Bible and that was the Bible that was in their local monastery or church. Uh, they may have had a couple of copies. Let me rephrase that of their Bible, but the only Bibles were in, in the, the hands of the clergy at that point. Um, so you begin to see things like the printing press and, and, and a secondary offshoot of this is you do begin to see a more educated population, which I don't know if that fits into the plague economy or if that's more of a social aspect, but it's still very important. I would argue that in many ways, this is the beginning of the, the industrial revolution. It's going to take a couple hundred years. It's going to take technological advances to really ramp it up. But um, you do see the beginnings of the need to industrialize. And the world will not be the same after this because they're going to keep thinking, okay, well, we did it with this. How can we make it more efficient? How can we make it more efficient to the point that now there's no such thing as a printing press, basically. Um, you send things to be printed, you send it to the press, but it's definitely not the printing press where you put the blocks in and you push down the paper and ink it and everything. It's now a modern industrial thing that can pump out hundreds of books in, in what, 20, 30 minutes. Um, also, the decrease in population. Now, a lot of people would say, how in the world could a decrease in population be a positive thing? How can you say that all these people being killed is good? Well, in many ways, it was. Um, yes, it was a catastrophic mortality. And yes, it denied society of some of their most productive members. Um, but at the same time, now for the first time in a very long time, more food could be produced than could be consumed. 
So what are they going to do with all this extra land? I mean, you're not going to just keep growing um, wheat or barley um, when no, you're making so much of it, you just can't eat it fast enough. So people will begin to start selling off their surplus, which is great for them because they get more money. Again, we go right back to the increase in buying power. Um, but another thing people can do is they can start cutting back their food production and they can start growing luxury items. We don't think of wine and beer as being a luxury item. It's just something you find at the grocery store. But for these people, for most of them, it was a, it was a luxury. You know, now all of a sudden, if I've got 50 acres and instead of 50 acres feeding the, you know, the entire town with nothing left, 50 acres could feed the whole country. I might split my 50 acres and say, well, 25 acres is going to be for me. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, obviously. 25 acres, I'm going to sell that food off um, and then say, let's go to 100 acres because it's easier. And then that other 50 acres that I inherited because the person next door to me died and he left nobody to take it, so I'm taking it. That 50 acres, I'm going to grow a vineyard and I'm going to make wine. Some of the best vineyards in Europe started after the Black Death. Why? Because there's just land everywhere. There's more access to land because a lot of people are just gone. So those luxury items are very, very important because today we think of beer and wine. We just take it for granted. Most of the Europeans, they they never had beer or wine, at least not on the scale that we do today. And another thing about the smaller population means that you can eat meat and vegetables. <laughs> when we sit down today, our meals are mostly meat and vegetables with a little bit of bread. You know, you might sit down and you've got a big uh, entree of maybe it's a steak and maybe you have a potato and maybe you've got a mixed vegetable medley. Um, and then they might bring you some dinner rolls. And we think, oh, the dinner rolls, that's a great little add-on. Most of these people, the, the poorest of the poor, their meal was bread. That was it. They were lucky to get meat. Uh, even uh, like it was always the reverse. It was like you got this huge hunk of bread and then you maybe got a little bit of meat and vegetables to supplement it. And the meat part was always, always a, a luxury. Like that was something that you got on your birthday. You know, that was a, that was a big deal today. Of course, we meet, eat meat all the time. Um, and so it's interesting to look at that and. When we look at this and this decre uh, decrease in population and the reduction of the workforce, it does make Europe more economically stable. And to go along with that, with the more access in land, you begin to see that a lot of the serfs will become peasants. And what's the difference? Well, the difference is land is redistributed um, and that will always benefit the poorest at this time because there's more of them. Um, Yes, 50% of them have been wiped away, but also a large portion of the wealthy elite has been wiped away. Nice thing about the Black Death is it didn't discriminate. Yes, if you were wealthy, you had a better chance of surviving because you could hide from it. But if you got it, you had the same chance. It wasn't like you could pay your way out of it. Um, like today, let's face it, if you get COVID-19 today and you've got the money, you can throw money at it and basically have a much better chance at surviving, say... Yeah, Yep. Um, a single mom who is on Medicare or Medicaid, um, you know, 
you can go and get the infusion and, and all these trial drugs that can pop you right out of it versus her who they basically put on a res uh, a what do you call it a respirator and then yeah and then um you know within seven to ten days she's gone um this is very important because this is really the beginning of the abolition of serfdom in western europe um and and many historians and i would agree with this believe this is probably the single most important of the economic and social developments that this idea of land-based slavery which is what serfdom is, I mean, the, the, the slight difference between serfs and slaves is a serf is tied to the land and a slave is tied to a person. So it's either the land owns you or a person owns you. Um, to me, there's not a lot of nuance to that. Uh, other people would argue, no, um, you know, you had that year, you know, you had that one day a year you could change land. Well, yeah, but the other 364 days or whatever it was then, um, you still had to stay stay on this one piece of property and listen to whoever owned it. Um, this is a big deal um, because, you know, serfs are not going to work as hard as peasants. Serfs, why are you going to work hard when you're going to end up the same exact place you were last year? A peasant saying, I might never be a duke or a lord or a baron, but I might be able to afford something better next year or something better. I might be able to get more land and more land. So this was a very important step. Um, now, obviously, I don't think that's where we're going to have an issue with COVID. I think the population, I still believe that no more than 3% of the population by the time it's over will die from COVID-19. We're, as I said, I think we're at 1.97% right now. Um, so I don't see vast areas of land being open up for the for those that don't own land. Um but I do think that you're going to see, you know, maybe not more luxury items, but I think I think you're going to see after we get over these shortages, food shortages and and short most of it, of course, obviously coming from overseas is, is a big issue. Um, I, I do think you're going to see a much stronger economy. I think the buying power is going to be better. I do believe that things are going to be more plentiful. Um and I do think that you're going to see technological um, changes, whether it's goods that we're getting in places like Walmart or Kmart or who, well, Kmart doesn't exist, but you know what I mean. Um, or basically, you know, maybe we're going to have um, better quality, but cheaper goods. Maybe we're going to get away from the cheap disposable things that we had been using for, for the last 50 years. Maybe we're going to go back to, um, a more sustainable um, economy because of this. Because we learned real quickly, one thing about this is you can't go to Walmart and pick up a new blank um, because you go to Walmart and Walmart might not have blank. Um, there was a big fight this year. Uh, people who know me know that I do a huge Halloween display every year. Um, and I'm in a lot of different groups that you know buy and sell things for Halloween. And, and the big thing this year was the... 12 foot skeleton from home Depot. Everyone wanted that 12 foot skeleton. Do you know they are still coming in? <laughs> I got mine in August. I don't know how I got it, but I got mine in August, but they are still coming in. It is what December 8th or December 8th, December 9th. 
they are still trickling into the U.S. and being sold because they ordered so many, and so many of them were stuck in the Pacific, just sitting there. <laughs> People better hope that it's still um, a a big ticket item in 2022. <laughs> oh, it will be. Oh, it will be yeah, because absolutely. so many people didn't get them. Mm-hmm. Um, we we had we yeah. got ours uh, we we bought ours off of someone that had that had bought like multiples and uh, so we ended up get there was a bit of a bit of a markup Price on more. it but uh, <laughs> and with that we are going to call it a day but Scotty will return in our next episode to talk more about the short and long term consequences of the Black Death and the Spanish flu and the parallels to our current COVID pandemic. Tune in next time to hear about more about the political, social, cultural, scientific, and public health consequences of each, and how they compare and how they differ. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear all about the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Jimmy Fennessy and Scotty Edler, I'm Rob Denning. Stay healthy and we'll see you next time.